Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest makes his triumphant return to the feed after last week's 90s draft podcast crossover extravaganza. He got the court-adjudicated best use of a skeleton in a movie on our legal thriller with his co-hosts from the Five Day Rentals podcast. Please welcome Cron Howard. Hey, what's up, George? Uh, yeah, I, it's all I talk about with my co-host now is uh, that I know more about skeletons than they do. So We all knew it going into it, and this, this just really felt like it confirmed it in a big way for, I feel like, everyone involved. Yeah, I always knew it was true in my heart, and now at least we've got a ruling that, that proves that out. So, <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? So I I had, you know, pretty conservative parents, but I had a buddy in like middle school, probably around seventh grade. His brother had all the VHS box sets for Friday the 13th, Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street. So worked out a deal with him. I would get one of those VHS tapes. I would bring it back the next day and I'd get the next (laughs) one. So I just powered through all three of those. I would race home after school, throw it in the VCR and we were off. Hell yeah, the, your own little copy cult in a way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you have a favorite subgenre? I mean, starting out that way, I would imagine that you like slashers, but it, it, it has that stayed something that that draws you in? I mean, definitely like slashers. Pretty big, you know, just fan of horror in general. But I will say, kind of getting into the movie we're going to discuss, like in our small hometown where Bones, Laundry, Dan, and I all grew up, we did have like a blockbuster and a movie gallery. But we also had this little like hole in the wall place that was called Best Way Laundromat and Video. Wow. And it was, I mean, this was a time where even like in general, VHS had been phased out a pretty long time ago and that's Mm -hmm. all they had there. So (laughs) at some point, whoever ran the store, he bought his tapes, I would guess somewhere between 81 and 89. And he was just like, that is the movie selection forever and ever. But it was awesome because you would just find all this stuff that like, you know, Blockbuster is not going to have it. A lot of direct-to-video, a lot of like Vestron and Prism. Oh, hell yeah. 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 So, and I, I think at the time that we were getting them, we were probably the only people going in there. So you could rent like three VHS <laughs> at a time for a dollar and wow. we would just, yeah, we'd get three and watch them all evening. So. Hell yeah. Who says no to that? Yeah. So I guess to answer the question, like B-horror, I mean, is, is really what hooked me into, you know, horror in general, just kind of seeing a bunch of titles where it's like, I've never heard of any of this, and it's going to be a wild ride. That definitely leads us into our our movie in terms of B-movies tend to be kind of poster first, (laughs) more high concept kind of stuff. So very exciting to talk today about 1995's Castle Freak, the direct-to-video Full Moon production that reunites Stuart Gordon, Barbara Crampton, and Jeff Combs for the second time on this show and the third time in real life. Very excited to talk about this one, which is actually a new watch to me, or rather, it is uh, like new to me recently. Although this was not my first watch, but I, it was so funny to me that like we it came up on the horror drafts podcast crossover. Our buddy Greg drafted it as one of his best movies of the '90s, and I was like, "Man, these guys are really like going hard for this movie right now. I'll, I'll have to watch it." And literally, like the next day, I I went and watched it, and I loved it. And then you reached out, and you were like, "Hey, I know Greg was going pretty hard for Castle Freak, but I would love to sneak in there and and or rather, he could have it. But like, if he's not, then I want to talk about Castle Freak because I love it as well." And I was like, "Well, he already talked about Return of the Living Dead." So you're in and I would love to hear about like how, yeah, if this is like one of those movies you found at that like video store, like how you came to it, because it does feel like the perfect B movie in a way in that it is so high concept, but and and like has a lot of gore, but there is a, a, a passion to it that Stuart Gordon brought to a lot of his stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So this was not one that we found in Best Way Laundromat and Video, but it definitely should have been there if it wasn't. (laughs) Um, I think I first saw this, like for whatever reason, Dan and I got on a, on a like Stuart Gordon kick for a minute. And I had watched from beyond and I was like, Oh dude, you got to see this movie. And then maybe just like a week later, he was like, have you seen castle freak? And I was like, no, (laughs) he's like, I just watched this thing, dude. He was like, it's on shutter. You got to watch it right now. 
So yeah, I threw it on and I was like, this might be, I mean, it's just what you said. It's like, it might be the best example of a B horror or at least like an entry point for someone. This is maybe if, if someone wanted to explore that sub genre, it's like start here. Yeah, absolutely. You really get your money's worth and, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And like I said, this is a classic poster first movie where Gordon was in Charles Band's office, noticed a poster entitled Castle Freak with a deformed man chained to the wall being whipped by the woman. Gordon asked about it and Band replied, well, there's a castle and there's a freak. Boom. Done and done. Mm -hmm. Castle freak. Yeah. I mean, I I think he also said, like, you can have this movie as long as you keep the castle and the freak. You can do whatever (laughs) you want with it. And it's like, I guess in Charles Band's eyes, it's like, these poster creators charge an arm and a leg. Like, I I can't go back and get new artwork willy-nilly for movies. That's right. That's right. Plus, you know, he's already, he owns the castle and everything, so it's, it's, uh, he's cutting, cutting those costs where he's able. Uh, and yeah, he didn't have a script, but he he said you can have $500,000 as long as you maintain those two elements. And Gordon said that he accepted specifically because he was really interested in making another movie where he had complete control. Then he has a, a history in theater where you have a little bit more power to have a self-contained kind of thing. So he was looking to return to that. And uh, and he said, sure, I'll, I'll do another low-budget horror here. This was filmed at Charles Band's Castle, Giove, about 90 minutes outside of Rome. And where this is where Spellcaster was shot, which I also like that movie. And Gordon's own Pit and the Pendulum adaptation as well, which I watched for in prep for this, and frankly, I thought it rocked. Like, I was blown away by how much I enjoyed that Pit and the Pendulum adaptation. Yeah, I haven't seen that one in a while. I know that I had watched it probably in that Stuart Gordon run that Dana and I were on. But yeah, I remember like some of the imagery from it, but how the story kind of unwinds, I'm pretty foggy on. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting because it's very melodramatic. Like mm-hmm. it, it's like a almost like a romance at its core, and then it just also has like a, a few like Stuart Gordon practical gore effects mm-hmm. thrown in for good measure. Yeah, the way I remember it, it's like it almost feels like a play that you would see, and then there's just a, like a flash of hyper violence thrown in yeah. for good measure. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it. This is a great moment from it. So for real, jump ahead 30 seconds or whatever. There's a moment where the like w- the actual witch is like going to be burned at the stake. And so she eats like a bunch of gunpowder and turns herself into a bone bomb. <laughs> oh, boy. What a movie. What a movie. But this sees Gordon return to H.P. Lovecraft stories. This one is inspired by The Outsider, along with, according to what he told Fangoria, at least, a real incident where someone in Italy had been locked up for years and then escaped. The elements that they pulled from the real story call for the realities of Italian light to be blended with the aesthetic of horror. And I do think that the moments where he's like interacting with Italy and the Italians really works. It creates like an interesting dynamic and does remind me of Italian horror and giallo, which I also enjoy a lot. Yeah, it definitely has that Italian feel to it. Like I, I'm not, you know, super into giallo, but Definitely have seen like a good chunk of Fulci's work. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there are scenes where, especially where he's kind of interacting with the townspeople, where it could have been, you know, lifted right out of Zombie or the Beyond or something. So, yeah. For sure. And Gordon mentioned in an interview with William Shatner, which this interview was very funny, that he feels you've got to go beyond the boundaries of good taste to push the envelope and to do something new. You need to know the director can do anything. And I think that. That's something that Gordon really does well. He embodies this ethos pretty well in that there is usually pretty early on in all of his movies, there's something like, holy shit, that's like a crazy thing to do. And then it just sets you back. And, and you, like he said, you, 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 you think the director can do anything. You never know where he's going to go uh, next. He, in the interview, was like, they're going for your throat. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah, I think one of the things they keep coming back to in that as well is like his ethos of more is more. And he's kind of like, I never understood directors that say less is more. Like, I want to show you more blood, more violence, like (laughs) just more of everything. Hell yeah. Maximalism is back, baby. It was a funny interview. I recommend people check it out. Shatner seemed belligerently drunk and he's like demanding that Jeff Combs say yes or no if he believes in ghosts. (laughs) Stuart Gordon. Tell me about hauntings is a prompt that he gives in the interview. (laughs) Oh, boy. It's a good. It's good. 
Optic Nerves John Vulich did the effects for Giorgio, the titular freak, which took six hours to apply, uh, half Frankenstein, half Elephant Man, and portrayed by John Fuller, who said, quote, My character is basically a victim, showing off the horrors of abuse. The only thing he really knows is violence. Giorgio is sort of a modern-day Quasimodo, but if I were to indicate the films that most influenced me for this role, I'd say The Mystery of Caspar Hauser and Truffaut's The Wild Child. Of course, since my character has no tongue and therefore can't speak, all the silent horrors I was treated to as a child were of great help as well. And I think that this makes a lot of sense. You know, this this pulling from the Hunchback of Notre Dame story and, and specifically the silent adaptation of it and everything, uh, Lon Chaney, is so embodied in the pity you do feel for the freak. You know, he is a tragic character. I think the actor does a really good job of you know, just getting down like movements and getting down, you know, facial expressions and stuff like that, where he is conveying something without saying any words. And I think just having Stuart Gordon on this, you know, they did have a pretty limited budget. I think it was a really smart decision to basically throw, you know, as much of that special effect kind of carve out that they had into, you know, the prosthetics and the makeup. Um, I feel like people might be, you know, tempted to, I don't know, throw in like an explosion or kind of spread those dollars around. Um, But I think just focusing on like, no, this is the thing. Like we're, you know, we want this to look right. We want it to look good. It does elevate the movie in a way because it, it does, you know, it punches above its weight. It looks better than a low budget B horror usually does in, in the, you know, makeup department. Sure. I would say it looks better than a lot of a horrors. Yeah, that's true too. (laughs) And as Fuller said, the freak is created by his mother, and he specifically said that she was driven by an inescapable sense of guilt, which obviously ties into the guilt driving a wedge between Jeff Combs and Barbara Cramps as well. Comb and Cramps, that's what I call them. That's their buddy cop. <laughs> buddy cop show. Oh, it's it was so hard in my notes not to just write down Crampton and Combs for yeah. you know all the character stuff. Exactly. I think that it probably did slip through a few times in mine. (laughs) Oh, it's definitely in mine. Yeah. Fuller seems like an interesting guy. In addition to his regular story on Castle, or excuse me, in addition to the regular story on Castle Freak from Fangoria, in the next issue, he also wrote his own article about his experience. He had worked with Gordon since the early 80s as a member of his organic theater company in Chicago. Then he also was uh, the romantic lead in The Pit and the Pendulum, with uh, both Gordon and, and Combs was in that as well. And so when they asked him to play Giorgio, he said, what, a chance to work with state-of-the-art prosthetics, do an homage to Lon Chaney Sr., and spend another five weeks in Italy? Gee, let me think about it, Stu. <laughs> Rigorous exercise and a thousand calorie diet to get the skeletal look, and it does work for the creature who is also gooey. That helps to make him fucking gross. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, Stuart Gordon in an interview, he was like, that guy was already skinny and like un- <laughs> uh, basically unprompted by anyone. He lost a ton more weight. So <laughs> Fuller said the, the piece de resistance is a product Stu wanted to use to emphasize Giorgio's development being arrested in his oral stage ultra slime this gelatinous product has the consistency of rubber cement and the look of thick ky jelly uh gross it's pretty gross it's nasty looking on screen (laughs) (laughs) he also mentioned that another influence was the haunting which they watched the first night that everybody was in the castle because gordon wanted them to get a sense of the evil presence that the castle would represent in the film and i think it works i think that using the castle kind of as a representation of the like feeling trapped and the guilt that is weighing them down does work it does it does loom they have a bunch of like establishing shots of the height of it and everything i I think it's great done really well yeah it's scary too because you hear several times throughout the movie that there are over 150 rooms and there's no way (laughs) you know any one person could check all those for something working He said, from now on, I will never feel totally safe at night here. My dreams start to become nightmares, and I'm aware of the presence of the castle ghost, which they attempt to contact via Ouija board. Unfortunately, she only speaks Latin, not Italian. I hate when that happens. It's the worst. I mean, I can't tell you how many sleepovers got ruined from Latin ghosts. (laughs) We had our Italians there, and they Mm -hmm. were ready to go. 
Gordon said, this monster has great potential, and if this movie is successful, we might even try to further exploit the character like they did with Jason or Freddy. And I cannot believe that we were robbed of Castle Freak X, where he goes to space. <laughs> Castle Freak takes Manhattan. Just imagine him arriving at Ellis Island like frickin' Fievel in American Tale. Oh, it would have been great. I mean, yeah, let's get him Let's get him into modern-day America and see what he can do. I mean, why not? <laughs> Giorgio, making his, he's hitchhiking across country. We could do a Castle Freak portrait of a serial killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There was debate about pursuing a distribution company for theaters, but finding someone willing to invest proved difficult. And as Combs said, you know how difficult it can get when you're dealing with a movie that won't be shown to the MPAA. And then how many movies are we talking here? One or 800? So you can see where the challenge would lie and how it might make more sense to just lean into the video side of it and just say, like, you know what? It's going to build this cult that we're not going to worry about spreading it out and trying to like also promote it in all these uh, little little uh, little towns. So, uh, you know, it's a it's a shame that it didn't get the the theatrical distribution. But, uh, you know, I don't think it hurt it too much. No, I mean, I think this is a movie that definitely still lives on. Um, I mean, it is nice that they got to. They, they got more control of it this way, but it is a, you know, it's a bummer in a way. I feel like Charles Band, you know, I think he had a theatrical distribution company. So surely it's like if, yeah, it's like if he wanted to, I'm sure they could have made it work. But mm-hmm. like I said, I mean, just having Stuart Gordon's final vision for the film locked in in a way that makes it really nice too. You know, I, I think yeah. it's better to go back to this version of it than a theatrical one that would have got cut up and, you know, re-edited and all that. Yeah, exactly. You just say, fine, we're not going to show it to the MPAA. We're, we're just going to lean into it. Now we don't have to be constrained. Because, first of all, the MPAA always makes cuts anyway. And so when people are like, they self-censor, even subconsciously, mm-hmm. because they're like, well, we don't want to get cuts. We're going to try and avoid that. So let's let's make this a little more sanitized. Let's cut around the actual violence or whatever. And then maybe the MPAA will, will leave it alone. And so by completely avoiding that, you can just say, oh, no, he's going to bite her goddamn tit off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it goes back to that more is more philosophy. Like, <laughs> let's uh, really gross out the audience here for a little while. Exactly. So Jeff Combs plays John Riley, and he said, this is not Herbert West in a castle. This role has affected me. It hasn't been a bouquet of roses from an emotional point of view. I find it difficult to have a good time even when the cameras aren't rolling. I can never really release myself from the terrible things my character feels guilty about. If you see this and laugh at me, it means I didn't do my job very well. And I have to say that, like, this is kind of a heightened performance. It, like, he is going pretty over the top with it, especially when he's, like, licking his lips in, like, a drunken fervor and stuff. But it all does work for the situation that it's in. It's the kind of thing where if you saw it removed from the context of the movie, you could laugh at it. But similar to, I think, Vampire's Kiss in that, like, oh, you see him screaming the alphabet and you go, this is an insane Nick Cage performance. But in the context of the movie, you're like, oh, he is supposed to be going crazy. (laughs) Like, it is that way on purpose. And so this fits that dynamic, the movie's dynamic really well. I think that it's not a laughable performance, even though it is heightened. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, he does seem to have an approach in this movie of, you know, that they talk about like with live performance playing to the back of the room. It's like he is, you know, he's going 10 out of 10 in certain scenes. But I mean, I've said it before, like with no irony at all. I love every decision that he makes in this movie. I love what he does with his character because it is like very, very big decisions and just an acting performance that sticks with you after you've ended the film. Definitely. Barbara Crampton plays Susan Riley, and she was really into this. It is a pretty interesting and dynamic character. Reanimator, this is a quote from her. She said, Reanimator was a lot of fun, but Castle Freak preys on human weaknesses in a crude, realistic way. My character is full of contradictions. She loves her husband, but then she wants to prove that he is guilty and therefore deserves to be punished. In other words, she feels she'll never forgive him. And this push-pull 
that's going on between the two of them creates a really interesting uh, just environment for the other drama of the castle to take place in. Yeah, I think the last time I watched this, I was kind of looking at how her and Combs interact. And like we were kind of saying, you know, Combs is going 10 out of 10. I think her performance is almost like the steady backbone of this movie in a way. And it's, it just serves as a, like a perfect counterweight to what he's doing. So it's like as much as he's pulling it up, she's bringing it back down to like a normal territory, you know, and it's that balance that they're approaching the the acting from that really makes this thing work. Yeah. And it totally fits into the characters for me as well. You know, he's doing that because he's desperate to redeem their relationship and he feels the guilt of what he's done. She is reserved because she's despondent. You know, this is a terrible thing that's happened to her. She blames him and it's the slow decline for her. Totally. Yeah. You, you can see how like this one event that, you know, has altered both of their lives has like changed each of them and how they're like continuing to, yeah, try to get back together, but they're, you know, approaching it from like different perspectives. So, yeah. Yeah. And Jessica Dollarhide plays their daughter, Rebecca, also pretty solid. She's caught between the two. I think you see that push pull catching her in the riptide there in, a, in some pretty interesting ways. And you see how desperate she is, you know, <laughs> when she talks about like how she doesn't care about normalcy, you can see that she is desperate for some kind of at least leveling out of, of the turbulence. Yeah. I mean, her character is like gotten, I don't know, her character might be like one of the, the saddest in this movie in a way, just because it's like, she gets no agency, really. It's just kind of like she is completely reacting to all the like terrible stuff happening around her. Yeah. As filming wrapped up, suddenly new furniture started showing up because the bands were arriving and about to have a giant family reunion there. And so they got rushed out the next day, which uh, is very funny. They were like, can we just like stay in a hotel? And they were like, we're not paying for that. <laughs> yeah, Charles Band just showed up and was like, Hey, I know I said you could use the castle, but get out at the same time. <laughs> and Full Moon was definitely struggling at the time, in perpetuity almost, you could say. <laughs> but they owed a lot of actors overtime, including about $6,000 to Fuller after all the makeup that he had to sit there for. And the American cast refused to do ADR until they were paid, and Stewart was begging them for months to accept a payment plan so that they could at least finish the film. And Fuller said the American actors did ultimately get paid, but that he, along with many other Europeans, got stiffed by band, failing to receive between half to three quarters of their salaries. And then he just like wrapped it up by being like, but that's Hollyweird. <laughs> you know, just a classic Charles Bayden <laughs> negotiation maneuvering. I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. that sums him up, I think, pretty well. Yeah. This financial difficulty also means there wasn't really any promotion for the movie, not even a poster for it, ultimately. What? Um, they already had that poster made. I know. I don't know what the fucking deal is, dude. I guess he was like, the, the woman who whips him is an old lady and we can't have her on there. Yeah, we were only renting that poster, actually. It's <laughs> returned to the original owner at this point. <laughs> But Gordon was pleased that it did eventually find an audience, despite the slow process, and he said, it's only the beginning, and frankly, I agree, more people will see that this is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. No question about I mean, somebody, uh, you know, they did a remake of it. Like, I think if this thing hadn't found an audience, like, that would have never happened. I, I feel like this has got some reappraisal, some new eyes on it, and, you know, the castle freaks are out there. That's right. Freaks, stand up. <laughs> so let's get into the movie. Starts off with an old lady prepping a shitty prisoner's meal, with a few slices of salam and a, a slice of bread. Mm -hmm. She treks us through the castle on the way to the dungeon. And I love this. I love giving us this little like tour before anything really starts. Great way to establish the space and the layout of what's connected where. Really effective. And it just feels very natural as well. It doesn't feel shoehorned in. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do appreciate it as well. It does seem like the entrance to the dungeon floats around at certain points in the movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, giving you some basic geography of where everything is, is, you know, it works well. Yeah. And she gets down there. She grabs a whip and, and through shadows, we see her lay into a pretty pitiful figure already. 
And while whipping him, the old lady leans up against the doorway, and she's breathing heavy. And apparently Stuart got worried, and he was like, are you okay, Helen? And she was like, of course, dear boy, I'm acting. A pro. Fucking got his ass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she she hits this guy so hard that she has a heart attack. She <laughs> she does not beat him to death. That's not what I'm saying. She hits him so hard that it affects her. She beats him to her death. <laughs> And, and yeah, she slid the grub under, she makes the long trek back, she's wheezing the whole time, and then collapses on her bed and croaks with the whip falling under the bed. And I love this little time jump here that's communicated through seeing her rot. Yeah. I feel like that's a pretty unique way of doing it, and it really works for me. Yeah, you get, like, a few shots of her kind of decomposing, and then I think there's a shot, too, of, like, the food that was left on the counter, and it's all, yeah. you know, gotten moldy and everything. Yeah, really cool stuff. And we cut to our main crew being escorted to the castle, which apparently John has inherited. Hard to believe, he says, but he is the son of the late Duchess's sister, which means he inherits the title, the castle, and all the possessions that it contains, including the freak and the baggage. Yeah, there's a part when they're driving up where John is kind of like, when I got your letter, I couldn't believe I had inherited a castle. It almost seems like a scam. And it's like, you know, I would say 99 out of 100, you'd be right. So yeah. <laughs> he's like, and then the Nigerian prince called mm-hmm. me and said he needed my bank account information. Yeah. Now I'm rich as well. He's got it all. But unfortunately, there's not really any money here because of the war. And they walk in and the paintings are grim. Skulls everywhere. I love uh, Jeff Combs there. He's like, how soon can you liquidate? (laughs) Yeah, they're not. They haven't even like walked to their room yet. And he's like, how much can I get for all of this? (laughs) (laughs) But the lawyer says they'll have to do an inventory because nobody but the Duchess has been in the castle for 40 years. The housekeeper is stiffly welcoming, but on her way out, she's like, it's good that you're leaving. (laughs) Now, how does this lady's contract work? Because uh, the Rileys don't know she's there. I guess she signed a contract with the house at some point, like with the castle. I mean, yeah, I I was thinking that like the lawyer was like, well, he says that she's his sister. So he was like, all right, nepotism time. I'm getting my sister back in here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like now they need a housekeeper to clean things up. I think she talks about later, though, that she was like there when the like before the Duchess kicked everyone out. So it's a small town. I guess working there then got rehired. (laughs) I like to think she has a contract with the castle itself. (laughs) I think she's actually a ghost and she has just haunted the halls of that castle for centuries. Mm -hmm. Susan quietly asks her to prepare another room for her husband because they're not currently sleeping together. Drama! I like that in the Um, background. Yes! He's so embarrassed! Yeah, he he, like actually bites his knuckles and yeah, it's very heightened. (laughs) Oh, it's great. I love it. Yeah, he looks very upset back there. And that night, he tries to woo her, win her back, and she is not having it. It's been nine months, and he hasn't touched a drop, he says. She knows, and she knows she should want to forgive him, but can't, and she kicks his ass to the curb. And he says, why did you even come with me? Which I think is a fair question. Yeah, I mean, seems like they're, I don't know, like she can't step forward to like fully forgive him. But yeah, I don't know. He does seem a little like scummy in this scene where he's just like I, we have this castle because of me like why can't you get over it already yeah yeah you're not wrong and it is funny to be like it's been nine months since the death of our son yeah. get over it idiot <laughs> exactly <laughs> he has a nightmare flashback where he's driving the kids home drunk in the rain how you doing back there JJ hey how you doing JJ <laughs> It's great. It's brilliant. I love it. It's fantastic. (laughs) Truly, you know, yeah, you say unironically love every decision that Combs is making. I agree. This is so fun. It is like, look, this could be a very, very grim scene. I think it's important to kind of like communicate what happened and then also like get through it so that we're not just completely bogged down in the nightmare of what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And I think that having Jeff's performance to anchor it works for that. Yeah, 100%. 
JJ unbuckles to grab a dropped like Game Boy type thing, mm-hmm. and uh, John maybe it was a Tiger Electronics. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely some off-brand, you know, <laughs> wizard computer or something. Who knows? Charles Band was like, "We're not buying a fucking Game Boy <laughs> on this budget." Yeah. <laughs> One, we can't afford it. Two, if they ever come after me, I can't pay that bill either. So, <laughs> And uh, John turns to scold him, and he drives towards a truck, then swerves into a tree, killing JJ and filling Becky's eyes with glass. The crash, I think, actually looks pretty good for like what the movie is. I mean, it's not like some crazy multiple rolls in the air or anything, but it's, <laughs> I mean, it is like a practical, you see it run up on like a bank and hit a tree and fully flip sure. over. So all it was missing was a fruit cart explosion. Yeah. Two, <laughs> two guys carrying a big pane of glass across the street. John is awoken by thunder and the nightmare, and he hears the crying of the freak haunting him like his own demons. And he wanders through the castle looking for the source, thinking it might even be the ghost of J.J., but what he finds instead is the wine cave. Like I mentioned, fun big performance here as he's licking his lips and he's sweating, (laughs) but he snaps himself out of it and he smashes the bottle and accidentally gashes his hand pretty bad in the effort. Well, also like an insanely large wine cellar. It looks like it goes on for a mile. (laughs) It's just it's stocked. It's the wine cave, baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The housekeeper helps him and is like, did something wake you? Eyebrows waggling like a madman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she tells him the ghost story of Giorgio, a beautiful child who died at five, but nobody knows how. The Duchess's American husband left her and remarried. And soon after, the boy was buried and everybody was dismissed. So the Duchess could live here solo until her death. And the people say... She was driven mad by the abandonment and took revenge on the sun against nature and God. And some in town, they also say, you can hear Giorgio crying. I love in this scene, like, there is a part, you know, obviously she throws in some Italian here and there. Like, but it's also a thing where she'll say, like, oh, the little bambino. And then... (laughs) And then she'll also add, that's a baby. <laughs> it's almost as if like Charles Bayon looked at the script and somebody said, I think people know what Bambino means. And he was like, I don't think you know my audience. <laughs> They've never heard of context clues. <laughs> exactly. There's another part where she says like Pazzo and she like does like a little crazy motion with her hand to her head. And then she's yep. like, that's crazy. <laughs> she's fun. I like this housekeeper wandering around. Mm-hmm. She adds adds a lot to it for me, but Becky is listening to Italian language tapes, and she starts to cry as it keeps using examples of colors and visual stuff and things that she'll never see again now that she's blinded. And Susan is all over her and hella nervous, but John invites Becky to tag along for starting the inventory, and he promises to stay on this floor so that she's safe. And they stumble on a nursery full of toys, which I really like this moment you know it it's the kind of thing where it feels like in a more rushed movie that they could cut this scene where they like stumble on the nursery because it never really comes back that much but i think it's a great contrast to what we know slash will find out about giorgio's fall from grace and just having this image in your head of like the room full of toys and then what becomes of him really works i think in a great way Yeah, it does give you, you know, just some idea of like, oh, hey, up to a point, this was a happy family, you know, that this kid at least experienced something. Yeah, I think it's it's good to show you like where his story goes and at least you get a glimpse back into like it wasn't always terrible. (laughs) Yeah, it almost makes it more tragic. Yeah, he had that love and then it got turned. Mm hmm. And he also finds the cat o' nine tails under the bed whilst looking for jewels and is freaked out. The way he says Jules kind of reminds me of Freddy Got Fingered, which I'm always happy about. Mm-hmm. And Becky wanders down to the dungeon door, searching for the scratching she hears while John is lost in an old photo album. And it's the cat, which somehow stayed alive. Good for it. Oh, yeah. Before she gets up, because he kind of sets her down on the bed. And then she's always kind of like, hey, what's going on? What do you see in the room? And he's like, just a minute. Dad's looking at stuff. <laughs> like, he doesn't tell her anything. Yeah. No surprise she wanders off. She pursues it down to the dungeon, and she trips down the slope, tumbling for a comically long time. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> but she persists, uh, indicative of her character that she doesn't let the skinned knee deter her at all. She gets back to the door, and, and we get some looks at the freak who grabs the cat, and after Becky is called back by her dad, who realizes she was missing. It's funny that like it made it so long, only to be eaten here. Also, a funny shot of its giant cat balls. You gotta laugh. <laughs> that cat actor was a great actor, but they definitely just drag him through that door. I mean... Yeah, for sure. He yeah. was not happy. Yeah. <laughs> Susan is the first to find Becky... And she ignores her saying there's someone else here to be like, hey, you're so stupid, you stupid idiot. Don't wander off. Yeah, she is. Uh, I don't know. It's crazy because uh, there's a part where she sets her down and she's like, I know you're blind and you have no friends. <laughs> they are just <laughs> this girl is down and they are kicking her. I mean, honestly, that's part of the issue for Becky is that she's like. You are constantly obsessing about the blindness, and I'm trying to move forward. Again, Susan can't do that. Mm -hmm. She is arrested in this moment here, and, and she is desperate to get back what was taken from her. And because she can't, she is instead developed this overprotectiveness. Yeah, definitely kind of like a helicopter parent. You know, she does get mad at John for Becky fell down, but I think he kind of rightly says like we cannot watch her a hundred percent of the yeah. time and she snaps back like well you can't and it's like yeah gotta let the girl live yeah. a little i mean also where were you then if yeah you exactly <laughs> susan yeah they get into this fight and while they fight the freak rejuvenated by his cat meat he absorbed its powers by eating it oh he does he does throw out what looks to be all the meat. Like he ate just the fur. Which has he to, loves that skin, dude. Yeah, it's gotta be the worst part, I would think. He likes the hair. Gets caught in his throat, I makes guess. him feel something. He has some roughage, maybe. And he bites and snaps off his thumb so that he can slip the manacles. It's goddamn gruesome. This is the start like this is the one where you're like, whoa. Where the fuck is this going to go next? Because this is intense for him. Like, it starts off with just a bite, and you're like, oh, that was pretty nasty looking. And then he reaches up and just snaps the damn thing. Fucking wild. Yeah, it's it definitely pushes this movie into new territory. And you're only, you know, 30 <laughs> minutes in, so it's like, where's this thing going? I mean... <laughs> He climbs out slowly, and he finds a mirror at the end of the hall. He's horrified by his own visage and what he's become, and he smashes it with the chains. This is ripped from the Lovecraft story that I mentioned, and I think it is a great scene. Again, sort of reinforcing the tragedy of what's happened, his own self-alienation because of what his mother has done to him. I, I think that Fuller is really, uh, he's killing it as the freak here. Yeah, I think there's a interview with Stuart Gordon, where he's talking about bringing in these kind of HP Lovecraft elements. And he talks specifically about this mirror scene. And then at the end of his little spiel, he kind of says like, but that's really only a five minute segment in a movie. So we kind of had to build, you know, 90 more minutes around it. And they did. Yeah. And it works. <laughs> they all go running at the noise and are spooked, but he's gone. The ghost of the castle strikes again. That night, he peels back the sheets to get another look at Becky while she sleeps. A noise wakes her, and she does get scared, but she can't see him. I was curious if it is better or worse that she can't see him in this moment. I mean, I guess for the plot, it's better, right? <laughs> like, For sure, for sure. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's better that she can't see him, just because it gives... I, I think I would rather not know. Yeah, exactly. If, you, if you're just like, it feels like there's someone there but I cannot confirm that. Well, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Permanently. <laughs> done and done. Roll over and go back to sleep. <laughs> he hides under a sheet uh, that was covering stuff just from like her death. You know how they do, they cover stuff in sheets so it doesn't get dusty. While John searches and he discovers the dungeon along with the tomb for Giorgio who looks just like JJ and the freak watches from the shadows. There's a cool part where he's a, uh... Oh, he's kind of like made himself look like a chair. And then whenever yeah. John uh, exits the room, you see him kind of pop up. It's it's yeah. almost like a little Scooby-Doo segment or something, you know? Dude, yes. There are multiple times, especially like in the chase later, where I'm like, this is a Scooby-Doo-ass movie, mm -hmm. dude. 
<laughs> and I love Scooby-Doo, so that's not an insult. Hey, me too. The The police come the next morning, and they don't believe that there's someone there since the door wasn't forced, and they think John broke the mirror, and that's how he hurt his hand, and they say they won't search because they can't spare the manpower, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it's 150 rooms. It'd take a small army to <laughs> to get through there. Sure would. He shows Susan the tomb, but the picture of Giorgio has been taken out by the freak. And they argue about feeling J.J. there, and it degenerates into her saying she is just punishing him since God didn't, and she wishes it were him who died. Yeesh. Yeah, he does also try to, like, kiss her neck again, and it's like, hey, this is a worse approach than you took at the beginning (laughs) of the film. Like, uh, Standing in a mausoleum is not going to be the way to go. Yeah, being like, oh, I swear I felt our son here. Yeah. By the way, let's friggin' smooch, man. Mm-hmm. I really love the chaotic camera as he storms off to the roof to throw himself from it, but he can't bring himself to do it. But yeah, the, the actual camera work there I thought was really great. It's also, I also... Oh, just a nice contrast, too, because like so much of this movie is in like an old dark castle, and you you know finally see him at the very top and you get you know some out exterior shots you know hell yeah hell yeah it also i mean i love having this here to establish the height up top for later yep so instead out to the bar for a drink he has he's given up two two strikes and you're out and so uh he's giving up on his sobriety and the card playing americans in the background are actually fuller and the special effects guys so there you go My man is sloppy, and he's approached by Silvana, who is a prostitute who he buys a drink before getting cut off himself and then knocking over the drink that he just bought her, which is very funny. Yeah, I like that we see his first drink, and then there's kind of like a little segment in the middle to show you that, you know, he's been there for a while. And by the time we get back to him, he's like shirt half unbuttoned, like (laughs) sweating. It's great. And the cop approaches him and says, go home. So he's like, all right, let's hit the cave, baby. And yeah, he's he is sweaty and drunk, and they have sex while the freak watches with his sheet mask on to cover his face. The name actually isn't about his looks, it's just about his sexual proclivities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we'll get there. <laughs> Apparently, there was a bat constantly interrupting the sex scene, which made them laugh and made the scene hard to shoot, which is funny. Yeah, that's a, almost a Scooby-Doo thing there, just a com- <laughs> comical bat flying around. <laughs> John is devastated by what he's done, and even more so when she demands some cash money, and he he pays her, and he sends her away, and he drinks himself to passing out. He should have known. I mean, John Riley, (laughs) he he, he seems like the kind of guy that would, uh, you know, leave a strip club in Florida talking about how Candy is in love with him. (laughs) Just look for the obvious signs, John. (laughs) Dude, when she asks him for the light, and then he's like, I don't... No, I don't have one. And then she just immediately pulls out a lighter. Mm-hmm. Very funny stuff. Silvana, though, is is lost and wandering around because it's a castle that she's never been in. Yeah, good luck getting <laughs> out. <laughs> like. And the freak grabs her, and you cut to the next morning, and the police knock, and they ask John if he knows where she is because she never made it home. And in the process, they reveal his bender to Susan, who is disgusted once again. There's a good little back and forth with him and the cops where he's kind of like, yesterday, you guys didn't want to look in the castle at all. And then the cop comes back with, yesterday, you invited us in, and now you're not. It's like a good, like, just after less than 24 hours, they've, like, flip-flopped, you know? Yeah, it's really great. I, I, I really love a lot of the character interactions. They're, they're a lot of fun. Down in the dungeon, the freak has chained her up. And he attempts to recreate the human connection that he witnessed. He's desperate for some affection. Uh, he tries to drink some wine. He almost chokes on it, which is, I think, a really great little moment as well. That like he's he's so fucked up that he like can't even get that much of normal human behavior out of the way. Mm-hmm. Gordon alluded to his inability to have sex because he has no dong, and the frustration there leading to his escalating the lovemaking attempts to consuming her. And it is gruesome. You know, this it does become full-on consumption. It is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the most, like, exploitative part of this movie. And I feel like people that I think kind of have a problem with this movie point to this scene. And I think... Like, rightfully so, it is pretty disturbing. Right. Like he said, you got to go beyond good taste in mm-hmm. order to push the envelope. And I think that they do. This is stuff where you're, I mean, it just sears into your memory. Yeah. You will not forget the scene. <laughs> 
Susan is finally leaving, and Becky is like, if he's drinking again, he'll need us more than ever, which is pretty mature reasoning, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but Susan doesn't want to hear it. And John talks to Gianetti, his lawyer, who is like, I'm sure you're innocent, and it will be fine. But also, just so you know, that main cop has a kid with her, so he's going to take this personal. I like Gianetti comes back from the beginning of the movie. I guess this guy just does, like, estate liquidations and missing persons. (laughs) He's a personal lawyer. Whatever (laughs) you need, he'll do it. That's how you know you're getting the exact specialization you need. Mm -hmm. Someone who will do any kind of law. Yeah. He's so specific, he's general. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But then he gets a call from the housekeeper, who he reveals as his sister, saying that she found the purse with all the identifying stuff, and now they're going to arrest him. He also reveals the truth of his heritage, that John is the bastard of the Duchess's husband and her sister, that he had left the Duchess for her sister, and that was the cause of the rage at their son, that it was a reminder of what her sister took from her. There's a cool part with Giannetti and Combs where... He's kind of like, hey, they found a handbag. Circumstances have changed. So I guess the only thing we really need to talk about is my increased fee for this now. And Combs is like, that's blackmail. And Giannetti just goes like, yeah, well, (laughs) what can you do? (laughs) Welcome to Italy, baby. (laughs) Back at the castle, the housekeeper hears the screams of Silvana and she follows them, finding Giorgio gorging himself. And the housekeeper is shocked at the state of the body, doesn't notice him sneak up and bludgeon her to death with the chains. Great sound design here. The impact of the swings is intense, Mm -hmm. brutal, impactful. You kind of get just a shot from, I don't know, maybe like torso up of Giorgio swinging the chain. Yeah. But it's like, it just goes on, man. I feel like there's (laughs) like 15 hits that they show you, you know? Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. John gets back, and he finds Susan leaving, and he begs them to stay, but they refuse until the police are like, uh, no, you can't leave, obviously. Yeah, well, but even his argument is like, if you leave, it's going to look bad for me. (laughs) (laughs) Not, I need your support in this trying time. Mm Mm-hmm. He's downstairs breaking into the Giorgio tomb, and when they find him, he reveals that it was empty, and the other person must be Giorgio. It's rocks. Oh, there's there's a good part, too, in the scene earlier where, so it's like him, uh, his wife is leaving, and I think she says, like, you're a whipping boy, and then he's like, whipping boy? Whipping boy? Why would she have a whip? <laughs> I've put all the clue together. <laughs> wow, Exactly. Yeah, they don't believe him, and and they don't go check for the whip, which he connects to her secret shame, especially after finding the awful remains of Silvana and the housekeeper. They leave a few cops to watch over Susan and Becky, who both obviously get murdered immediately. This is great. I love this. Introduce these fools just to get that body count up, baby. Mm -hmm. He pulls one of them up through a chimney. Real uh, yeah. reverse Santa Claus scenario. Dude, I, I love that. Fuller apparently is the one who suggested that because mm-hmm. it's like a murders in the Rue Morgue style thing. And so he's like, oh, we'll bring some Poe in here. And the other one gets his eye chomped out, yeah. which is great. Look, classic. Looks good. Yeah. Down at the station, John is having a tough time convincing them, uh, resulting in some classic police brutality. <laughs> yeah, he like one shots him with that billy club. I mean, he sure does. Meanwhile, the freak knocks out Susan, which is pretty funny. He just, like, reaches around the corner and bonks her head. That one made me laugh. But he sneaks into Becky's room, and he captures her. Susan wakes up to see her being brought to the dungeon. She runs in pursuit, grabbing a knife and finding the bodies along the way. John makes his escape to try and protect his family after getting a hold of the billy club and bashing in some skulls himself. Yeah, that uh, you only need one hit from that thing. It must be like a quest <laughs> item in this movie. I mean, it's super important. It really is. It's, it's enchanted with some kind of uh, <laughs> knockout debuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, like, I think it's fun. Jeff Combs is not who I, like, consider an action guy. Yeah. And I think that he, like, does a pretty good job of, like breaking out of this police station and then hopping out the window like it feels kind of believable to me that he's doing this yeah i mean the we'll get there but the fight at the end is you know i think it looks good so yeah yeah now we get to the grand unmasking but i also do respect that they made sure to show us how the freak has been staying hydrated (laughs) 
<laughs> like, all right, show him licking the fucking wall, precipitation off cave walls here, because we know somebody's going to be like, how the fuck did he stay alive all that time? Well, that is kind of a question. I, I mean, I get that he can get his own water, but at the very beginning of the movie, you know, that one lady, she was the only one feeding him, and it gets into a weird spot of like, so no one's been feeding him for a long enough time for a body to start to decompose, but <laughs> not long enough to kill a man or a cat. Look, when you're as old as the Duchess, you rot quicker. Sure. Also, it's it's humid in Italy, so you know things things uh, things go. Yeah, things go. probably just a couple hours when you take that all <laughs> into consideration. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No wonder the cat was okay. Mm-hmm. This scene actually came from Fuller's nightmare, the unmasking. He said it came to me after awakening at four a.m. And Stewart said, "I hope you have more nightmares like that more often." <laughs> But he realizes that she's blind and, and kind of connects over their injuries, and he pulls off the sheet before smooching her ear and neck. In runs Susan, who lures him over by flashing her bra. <laughs> and it's a trap, and she stabs the heck out of him. And this is just so funny for her to be like, okay, come over here. But obviously, I mean, it does make sense. Because I don't think that he wants to be, like, raping. And so the idea of someone being willing and and accepting him, clearly he is upset by what's happened to him. And so I I think that it it makes sense that he could be lured by even the idea of someone being into him. Yeah, I mean, breasts are both his motivation and his downfall relatable. (laughs) She... She and Becky make a break for it, but she is still blind, so the going is slower than you might hope when the freak is leaping from windows. (laughs) And yeah, you get this Scooby-Doo-ass chase through the castle. A lot of fun. During the shooting, they had a three-hour dinner because the World Cup was on, and they had striking, mutinous crew members when they tried to film during the games where Italy was playing. (laughs) Sounds right. Yeah. They hid in the Duchess's room. And he finds the whip, the instrument of his torture these long years, and he goes wild. And Fuller said, Salvatore wasn't able to come up with a fake, so I used a real metal-studded cat of nine tails. And in one shot, Stu wants to film me from below and has the crew put up a mattress so the whip will hit something off camera. And I try to protest, but with my dental pieces, it sounds like, Oh, ooh, which he translates as, but Stu... If I hit the mattress, the whip will come back and hit me. Frustrated, I do, it does, and I get a face full of whip. Stewart has says we are all allowed one freak out during the, during the shoot. This is one of mine, and we all have at least two. It ends up being about one of five for me. <laughs> Good lord. I mean, they just couldn't build a believable whip? <laughs> like, No, no fakes, baby. All right. This is the authenticity that the movie is capturing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, real whip, real jump off the tower at the end. (laughs) Fuller gave his life for this performance. (laughs) You got to respect it. The little guy tuckers himself out, though, and (laughs) he leaves the room. But they step on some glass, and the noise draws him back, and the chase is back on. This is what really cemented it as Scooby-Doo for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you hide in the cupboard, you get out, and the chase starts again immediately. Yeah, I think she knocks over a vase, too, and it's, you know, just like a little, let's throw a little trope in there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You also get a fun, like, slight camera spin on an already dutched angle as they climb the stairs. Just every now and then they remind you, like, this is a real, like, there's artistic vision in this as well. Like, there is, like, great directing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I do think, like, this through and through is a B movie, but it's made by people who have, like, been in the industry forever. Like, they they all know what they're doing. You know, very right. capable film crew. Absolutely. They're cornered on the parapets, and it's pouring, but John has arrived to save the day, and he draws Giorgio onto the roof itself, and they struggle, and John kicks him in the balls, which is funny. Castle Freak's got nards. I don't know. It's kind of a bummer to kick a man in in the balls when he doesn't have a penis. Seems somehow very wrong. Insult to injury, yeah. for sure. In order, in order to save the other two, John grabs the chain, and he takes the freak over the edge with him, and they splat in the courtyard. 
And Fuller said this sucked big time because while he lay there, they were just like pouring freezing cold water from about 20 feet above them. And his makeup was like a sponge because it's literally foam rubber. So when he moved, it was like gushing with gross blood water mixture. Yeah, I'm sure before they started, they were like, we're going to throw some more of this uh, goo all over you too to... <laughs> Just to really make you look uh, greasy in this last shot, so. (laughs) Yeah, they really make sure that they get an image of him, but it is a nice moment. He is finally redeemed in Susan's eyes now that he got his comeuppance in addition to the contrition, and she can finally love him again. Yeah, now that he's dying. (laughs) Yeah, that's all it it took. Mm -hmm. Funeral procession, and the final thing we see is the cop with his and Silvana's son, uh, I really, actually really like this. Another family kind of growing up, struck by tragedy. Who knows how it will affect them as well. Sort of the ripple effect of what's been happening, how the abuse didn't just affect Giorgio. It then affected this family here and and now uh, the cop and his son. So just a really nice conclusion, I thought. Yeah, and the the final shot, too, like the... The whole part where they kind of like walk around the stairs uh, led by like Susan and Rebecca in black and then it kind of cuts. I mean, it looks like almost a classic movie would end or something. You know, it's like that ending looks better than a movie of this caliber normally would have at the end of it. You know, definitely. And I think that's a great transition into the part of the episode, Kron, where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Absolutely. Not since the 1896 classic, The Arrival of a Train at a Station, has a film so completely (laughs) delivered on the promises set forth in its title. (laughs) Do we have a castle? Yes. 150 rooms worth. (laughs) Woo! Do we have a freak? You bet your ass we do. You bet your ass. I think if you're a fan of horror these days, there is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, especially in kind of like the modern movement, which I really hate it, but it's like elevated horror is this idea of everything that made a horror movie fun and entertaining. Like that's not real filmmaking. We're going to show you how to make real movies for adult audiences. (laughs) And I, there is a part of me that's like, I think some of the movies that have come out attached to that description are some of the best of like the last decade. But I really love that there is a movie like Castle Freak that just flies in the face of that (laughs) elevated horror genre. I mean, this film tells you everything you need to know about it in its two word title. To be very clear, it is a cheap, low down, exploitative film. Uh, But it is being put together by some of the top names in the B-horror genre. I mean, you've got Charles Band, say what you will about the man. But if he didn't know how to make a movie that made some money, he would have been out of a job a long time ago. (laughs) You've got Stuart Gordon, who's made arguably some of the best horror adaptations of the 80s and the 90s. And then I do think you get the performances of Barbara Crampton who's kind of the steady backbone of this film and is the perfect counterweight to Jeffrey Combs, totally unhinged acting. I would say like, yes, at the end of the day, this is a movie that was created from a poster rushed through pre-production. It was shooting its first draft as cheaply as possible. But to me, that's exactly what makes this thing so damn entertaining. I mean, you can feel every little human touch and imperfection throughout this film. I do think it's the perfect blend of seasoned industry pros meeting up with a kind of goofy half-baked plot. But the result of that, what you're left with is this movie that is compelling, interesting, and endlessly rewatchable. I think when you put all that together, you can only call it the best horror movie ever made. I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think I love Stuart Gordon. Like, Reanimator is... Also, one of the best horror movies ever made. I absolutely, unabashedly adore that movie. I think it is hilarious. I think it's creepy. I think it's got great gore. The script is tight as hell. And for him to not just have that one movie, like, that would be enough for a lot of people. And then for him to have The Pit and the Pendulum, which, I, like I said, I really loved that as well. It totally took me by surprise how much I enjoyed that movie. From Beyond is also incredible. And then Castle Freak is so pure. It is so honest with what it is. You know, 
you mentioned that it is an, an exploitation movie, and absolutely it is. But I also just want to make sure that our audience understands that, like, that is not a slam. Like, <laughs> ex- it's exploitation in its most uh, accurate version of what that word is is used for in movies in that, like, it is exploiting a, a concept that it knows people will want to see to get them into the theater. And they slapped it right on the damn title. They say people are here to see a castle freak. And a lot of movies have trouble delivering. <laughs> and this movie doesn't. You know, you get a lot of him. The effects on it are great. The performance behind it is also great for all of these things to have the focus that they do and then also have the rest of the movie come up to that same level to meet it, to have the the supporting performances of, of Jeff Combs and Barbara Crampton and even a lot of the Italian cast members whose names I unfortunately didn't grab, but they're all really, I think, spectacular as well in terms of hitting the characters that they need to hit. I just think that it's it's so spectacular. The effects are incredible. They are goopy. They are gory. Like I said, it sears into your mind. It is a capable cast, like you said, coming together to deliver something that could have floundered. And I also think this doesn't necessarily... Uh, this is, I guess, adjacent to it being the best, but maybe doesn't actually contribute to it. I think it is actually underrated and underseen in a world where that is becoming more difficult. This is a movie where people don't necessarily know it. They haven't seen it necessarily. And part of that is because it did have to kind of develop its audience from the direct-to-video approach. And I think that as that audience continues to grow, as it shows up on podcasts like this, I think that that will help it to find that audience. I really do want to encourage people, if this sounded appealing to you, watch the movie because it really is something special. I think it's it's a great time and you will truly enjoy it. Yeah, I think watch this movie and then when your friends bring up something like Texas Chainsaw or Hellraiser, you could be like, man, that's mainstream stuff. You got to watch <laughs> Castle Freak. That's right. That's right. You will be the cool Castle Freak hipster. <laughs> oh, I also wanted to add like... I think the characters are like super complex in a way that it's like there is not really a good person in this movie. I mean, there are, you know, I feel like the classic kind of thing would either be Jeffrey Combs's, uh, like his character's redemption story, Mm. or you would have Giorgio who was like, you know, mistreated his whole life, but is misunderstood and actually this nice guy character. And it's like, neither one of those things happen. Like, Combs just kind of falls back into his own way, uh, makes the situation worse for everyone. And Giorgio is just, you know, he's unhinged. He's been changed by what's happened to him. And he, you know, he's completely reactionary and just kills, essentially. So you really don't get either one of those tropes where it's like, hey, this one's good and this one's bad and they're brothers. And it's kind of like... Everyone is bad. Everyone has been <laughs> abused and mistreated, and it's just a terrible situation for all involved. Yeah, I love that, and I love that it works to make the characters feel balanced, because it would be very easy, I think, for Barbara Crampton's character to have come across like a nag, or like like Jeff Combs's character is being put upon by her, that like it wasn't deserved. But you see him being awful, too. Mm-hmm. And so it helps to make the interactions feel more interesting and and genuine. So I totally agree. Best horror movie ever made. Goddamn, what a what a picture. Kron, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was super fun. Please tell the folks where they can follow you, where they can find you, all that jazz. Uh yeah, I'm one of the three co-hosts on the 5 Day Rentals podcast. If you like hearing about movies like Castle Freak or titles where you say, "Huh, oh, I've never heard of that movie before." <laughs> come listen to the 5 Day Rentals podcast. We've kind of based it all around a video store concept and we essentially are just finding a bunch of stuff where none of the films we cover would have been on that new release wall. We're looking for, you know, the gyms in the middle of the store that everybody passes over. So there you go. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I definitely encourage you all to check out 5 Day Rentals. 
Bones, Kron, and, and Laundry Dan. Kron just mentioned that they all grew up together, and I think that it definitely comes across that they have uh, such a great camaraderie. It's a lot of fun. So mm-hmm. A lot of love and hate and years all wrapped together <laughs> there. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Instagram and Letterboxd and the Patreon. If you're really enjoying the show, there are all kinds of fun bonus episodes over there, including a legal thriller with the five day rentals boys. Mm -hmm. Uh, You already heard about one of the cases about uh, the best use of a skeleton and that, that Kron won that one, but boy, there's a lot of great fun cases in there. It was a really fun time. And uh, it sounds like there may even be some appeals processes uh, happening. So, so we'll see what happens uh, on that end, but it was a, a great time. Yeah. We loved being on there. You know, if you are listening, Get on the Best Little Horror House Patreon. It's a great place. George is a great host. Every time one of your episodes comes out, it's an instant listen for me. Just one of my one of my favorite podcasts. Wow. Well, very kind of you to say that. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, we got we got all kinds of great stuff coming out. You know, I mean, Human Centipede 2. <laughs> Here's the thing. I genuinely like Human Centipede 2 because... As much as I thought Human Centipede 1 was interesting, it isn't necessarily what you'd expect from even the reputation that Human Centipede has. And so then the director was like, oh, okay, fine, you fucking dickheads. If I'm going to get this treatment anyway, then I might as well make the movie that you think that I'm making. And so, again, you know, talk about exploitation movie. Human Centipede 2 is like one of the grotiest exploitation movies that i have ever seen that at least ones that didn't actually like go out and fucking do like uh, cannibal holocaust murdering animal shit mm-hmm. I- i'm really excited to talk about that one with nate who we, uh, he was the one who did the first human centipede he originally wanted to do the entire trilogy and i was like i don't know that i have that in me first of all but also I don't know, like, that would take too much time to research and compile all that shit for for one episode. And so I was like, let's start with the first one. We'll see how I feel about it. And then maybe I'll watch the rest. Turns out I liked them. So Nate's coming back to talk about Human Centipede 2. Not going to be a conversation you'll want to miss. So if that sounds good to you, sign up for the Patreon. Five bucks a month. You get all kinds of great stuff. Come on. And if you really don't want to pay, then uh, rate and review. Because that's free, and it still helps out the show. So, uh, yeah. That's it. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.